1: This
2: is A Lot to Learn with Austin Rogers. For the guy who knows everything, he's still got a lot to learn. Without further ado, here's Austin. Welcome, 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 welcome. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon. I have no idea what time it is because it is a podcast, so you're listening to this whenever. Uh, We've got a very special one tonight. I am here with an old friend, Leah Thompson, who is a documentary filmmaker and curator extraordinaire, specifically about issues in China and the climate and the environment. And today, we're going to talk about her most recent project, which is the Bishan Harvest Festival project, correct?
1: Well, my most recent documentary was about that that project. So and
2: yes. Bishan is a small rural town in China.
1: It's a tiny village in the middle of Anhui Province, China, a place most people haven't Heard
2: of, and the documentary is essentially focusing on art exhibitions happening in that uh, in that village. But the underlying current is the uh, ur- urban urbanification is urbanification a word? Great word. Let's make it ur- urbanification hard. of China and the resulting loss of rural culture. Essentially, correct?
1: Yeah, I was following for about five years this artist who went back to. Um, went to this village to see if he could find a way to bring life back to the countryside after so many people have left.
2: Now, worldwide, urbanification, the word I just made up and I'm now coining it, you're welcome, OED, (laughs) urbanification is, it's the way of the future. I mean, everyone is moving to cities across the globe. Yes. Secondly, urban dwellers have a smaller carbon footprint than people who live in standalone homes or in rural environments at least in modernized societies.
1: Yeah, I would I would associate that more with suburban life or
2: suburban life is the power consumption and environmental consumption. Yeah, in terms factor.
1: of China in rural China, you know, most of these people are living without refrigerators and you know off the land in in ways or or at least they were, um, and they're not. They're not consuming much. Um, you know, as they get TVs and they see what's happening in the urban areas, that's why a lot of people are pulled to leave and to find more opportunities for themselves, economic opportunities. But the lives that they're leaving behind were very sustainable.
2: Right, and uh, is there like a factor of like painting the idyllic out of this, like uh, sort of rose-colored glasses on? Rural life, I mean, are we putting is there an us versus them rural versus urban dichotomy, or is it more a search for balance
1: Well, I think if I could talk about like a little bit about the motivations of the artist who i 've been following his name is Oning, I think when you when you look at what migrant workers find when they get to the cities in China. It's not um, a really great experience. I think maybe 20 years ago, people could move to the to the cities and really move up and their economic experience would would improve and their families would prosper. But now there's definitely a um, a um, what do you call it? A permanent underclass almost um, that are kept down by certain laws that prevent uh, rural people from becoming official urban people in china, so
2: really, so like an internal an internal you know substrata between urban and rural
1: yes, if you're born in a city to uh, parents who are from a city, you have what's called a a huko, it's an urban huko, it's a classification that follows you. To change your hukou to um, a different place if you're coming from an ur- a rural area, it's very hard. And so you don't have the same access to uh, education, to health services. So when migrant workers come from rural areas to the city, they often have to leave their children behind because their children can't have free education and different things like that. That's why you end up with the situation with uh, a lot of these small towns with older people who are retired and their grandchildren.
2: It's a parallel to, you know, the American subclass, which is Latin American migrant workers who typically leave their families behind and send money back, um, now in China is because that is a benefit in my opinion a beneficial relationship per American society where we're uh, enhancing the Latin American countries with our uh, with our dollars through payment is the same thing happening in China, where the rural communities are, as the money gets sent back from the migrant workers, is it is it giving a leg up for the rural dwellers as the so-called breadwinner is out there, maybe under not the best circumstances in the city, but still sending back the money?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of money coming back to the rural areas. Um, and- you, de- you definitely see that I have a really hard time making value judgments about if their lives are better or not. Um, I think that what owning is trying to do is to show that maybe there's a way that we could uh, help urban and rural areas interact in a more uh, in a more beneficial way that makes more sense and like brings community and life back to the countryside so that the people who are there. Want uh, to so find a reason to stay there because maybe there's more economic op- opportunities in the rural areas.
2: That are not immediately evident.
1: Well, if by creating some sort of romanticized idea about the rural area, it actually makes the rural area more valuable monetarily to the people who live there. So they've a lot of them end up creating bed and breakfasts and um, finding different ways to make money through. This new economy and the, this new romanticized idea for the up, you know middle upper middle class of, of Chinese society who want to go back to the land and experience that countryside it's it's it mirrors the United States very closely right
2: right no I mean the same way that you know uh, uh, preserving national parks and national forest land is a tenfold economic boon vis a vis mining it and cutting the trees down you know. the the natural pastoral land is more valuable for tourism and secondary industries rather than the primary, you know, either agrarian or ranching or cattle or uh, extractive industries.
1: 100%.
2: Um, So talk about the project, the Bishan Harvest Festival, which was canceled by the local government, correct? At least that's what I gathered from your film.
1: Yeah, that's actually how... This won't
2: air in China, so we're cool.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Neither will my (laughs) film.
2: So... I don't think anything airs in China, (laughs) except Transformers
1: movies, (laughs) which which
2: heavily feature China.
1: So what actually first brought me to this village was a art exhibition that I was helping produce. And we spent about a week uh, installing the art in this Ming Dynasty Ancestral Hall Um, owning the main artist who was curating this festival had found about uh, seven villages all around the area that were going to host different art projects and It was a most amazing experience putting up all this artwork, but then at the last minute, um, you know, with the local villagers as our art handlers, but at the last minute, the government did cancel it. They had been sponsors of the actual photo festival that we were a part of, not the larger Bichon Harvestival that Onin was putting on that involved bringing musicians and different artists to town to do poetry readings and different things. It's really hard to say why they canceled it, but... I think that's what first drew me in this, not necessarily the censorship itself, but watching how people reacted to that experience. I was personally devastated, but
2: yeah, the, the from, Chinese
1: artists just are so used to this that is, sort of this, thing.
2: Yeah, I, that's what I gathered from the film. It's like, oh yeah, now we expected this. This is, this is the way it rolls. I've had four things canceled this month, you know?
1: Yeah, and so this resilience in the face of like ex- I mean, for me, it's not something I I can bounce back from. So I was just drawn in by that mindset. And also having spent a lot of time in China and even in the United States, you know, we all have these paths that we find ourselves on and these goals that society tells us we should be aiming for. And I was just really drawn to these people who were, you know, Finding a different way, and you know choosing a different value system to create for themselves, and
2: ultimately, the festival did go on in a maybe subversive underground fashion, right? Like the doors were closed, but people were allowed in and
1: yeah, you know it did definitely went on the The issue with how it, I mean it went on in an underground way in one of these um beautiful restored. Um, bed and breakfasts for you know for the wealthy in China and the issue being that once it went on in that form it really wasn't for the villagers and in the previous year when it had happened um, and did occur without any problems it was very much something that um, both rural and urban people took part in together and so you know, it became something that year, at least, that like I enjoyed a lot. But it was the local people weren't able to attend it,
2: uh because of
1: because it was behind closed doors and the government was looking. Mm-hmm. Big brother was out there. Yeah, <laughs> but then you know, it, it did continue for for quite a few years in different forms after that until um, 2016 when Onin was actually kicked out of the village.
2: Really. So he was kicked out of the village by the state? Yes. For subversion?
1: Yeah, you know, it's it's never clear why things happen. And that's another lesson I've learned through this whole process is trying to figure out how to accept the fact that you'll never know the reason why something happened.
2: Thus, the sanguine attitude of, you know... Say la vie. This is what happens. Move on.
1: Yeah, I mean, this was a harder thing to move on from for him, no.
2: for sure. Oh, so he had he, he had an issue moving on from this, also. Well,
1: he had he eventually made Bichon his home and spent a lot of time and money investing in the community. And you know, by the time he was kicked out, he had just had a baby. It, uh, the baby was about four months old. And the government came and turned off the power and the water, turned off the power and the water in the middle of the night. Um, so it was freezing winter in Anhui Province, and these are old courtyard homes that they're living in. So there's no real heating except with electricity or you know a coal basket, which people don't use too much. You know, in you wouldn't want to use one of those in your room, where you might die of carbon monoxide poisoning (laughs) or,
2: or or fire.
1: (laughs) So, um, they rely heavily on electric heating in the rooms. And so it was, it was just an awful,
2: and the state was just like
1: click. Yeah.
2: Uh, so not strong arm tactics, but sort of backdoor tactics.
1: I mean, it's pretty strong, but without saying anything. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Oh no, we don't know why the power is off.
1: Oops. I mean, it was pretty clear it had been cut when you went out to look at the box. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. But <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> I didn't do it. Yeah. Yeah. That I, I mean, we often think of, like, the encroaching state in American political discourse. And, you know, there's search and seizure issues here. And there's... Uh, when the police can seize cash assets during a traffic stop and without recourse and you don't you have no way and but those usually get highlighted, and this just sounds like this is endemic of the chinese state
1: Yes, it seems to be i'm what what really bums me out for lack of a better word is is that i didn't set out to make a documentary about you know, um, censorship in China. I feel like every documentary is about censorship in China or the state's hand in China. But
2: by virtue of it being in China, it is going to end up being that.
1: Well, I really wanted to tell this story. I mean, for four years I was following it and it was kind of about these people who were, how, how you persevere or how you work around the system. And then it just became com- consumed by...
2: The system will win. Mm -hmm. That's It's so... I'm morbidly fascinated with this Mm -hmm. sort of... uh, I'm I'm actually at a loss for words right now. I can't sort of articulate. I'm morbidly fascinated with this sort of intrusive policy, and I want to sort of cycle back to excuse me, I want to sort of cycle back to Um, this maybe Western stereotype of, you know, other cultures, you know, they've always been totalitarian. Like Russians want a strong man in charge. Whenever they do democracy, Russian democracy fails, but a a pseudo czar or an actual czar actually functions in the Russian psyche. And I mean, China is the, if not other than India, the oldest culture on earth and they have had an imperial culture and an empire for millennia so is that an ingrained psyche within certain cultures or is it changeable and malleable or does the status quo automatically push it right back into its preordained sort of box which is yes it's always top down it's always been top down it always will be top down oh well
1: I mean, I, I would have a hard time as someone who once thought they might be a historian saying that it's always going to be top down. I think, I mean, I hope I hope another system is possible. I mean, one might have said, you know, two years ago that democracy was always going to be the way in the United States, and all of a sudden you learn that there's a huge segment of the United States population that seems to like an authoritarian system as well. So or is at least drawn to a big leader.
2: Yes, yes, the traditional, yes, the big man, the strong man, the one on the posters, you know, follow me or whatever. And
1: I wouldn't have said that that's what I thought Republicans who are so small governments in so many ways wanted. So I think, you know, it's all changeable.
2: Oh, well, I think we should take that as a... Optimistic that we're going totalitarian? <laughs>
1: no, it, <laughs> that, it's, no, it's no, no, no. Optimistic <laughs> that China might not <laughs> no. forever be that way. And,
2: yeah, right. Because if we could go from like democracy to like, ah, eh, Russia's not that bad. I sort of like it. I said, okay, so I set out on this show uh, to never be political. And it turns out, like, Four out of seven of the episodes, I'm like, oh, so uh, I shouldn't eat beef and never have children, and neither should you. And now I'm like, ah, you know what? Uh, totalitarian governments are not that bad.
1: <laughs> I think they're definitely bad.
2: <laughs> uh, no, I, 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 I am very well aware that they are incredibly bad. I just bad. felt the need to reiterate that point. I don't know if sarcasm comes across your earphones right now, but when I said, totalitarian governments are great, that is a sarcastic tone. <laughs> well...
1: You know, there's a lot of people who study China who look to China as like a model of what you can get done with a totalitarian state.
2: You could get done anything with a totalitarian state because you could just throw labor and people at it and not care about the outcomes.
1: There's a pretty big intellectual movement in the United States, I would say, that supports some of those, you know, like, look what you can accomplish with the environment or whatever, you know. And and I don't – so I just – because it is an actual school of thought in the China realm, I have to make it very clear that that's not the way I feel. <laughs> right,
2: and like you know, in uh, in historian communities, there's the uh, there's the subset of Napoleonic apologists. They're like, well, he installed the code Napoleon across Europe, and that is basically the foundation of continental european law and the roads and 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 them like and you're one step away from saying he made the trains run on time you know and uh, uh, yeah such a such a delicate balance between the want and desire for authority and command but the need for personal liberty
1: i think that as a an environmentalist, there's definitely something, you know, appealing about the idea of being able to accomplish a lot very quickly.
2: Yes. I mean, uh, for example, Shanghai and Beijing, no car day. You can't drive today because we got to keep the air clean. So that's it. This is a bad smog day. You can't drive. That is against the law. That is effective.
1: Exactly. But then
2: you also can't drive. <laughs> and we're, we're pretty big on driving. I'm pretty big on driving. I rarely drive my car. Uh, I, I just bought my first car in 19 years. And the only reason I use it is to leave New York City, not to use it in New York City. Anyone who does that is a freaking idiot. I'm talking to you. to everyone who drives in New York City.
1: <laughs> well, as an L.A. resident without a car, I I think you understand how I feel about cars.
2: All right. I know, she, yeah, Leah Leah does not own a car in Los Angeles, which, by the way, is not out of the realm of possibility. I've been out to Los Angeles five, six times in the past year and a half, and I'm doing pretty well. The only time I ever rented a car was when I was in la going to san diego and then coming back to la that's the only reason i needed a car otherwise i'm in downtown la right now it's immensely walkable uh at least this area is and otherwise it's a seven dollar prius lift away
1: exactly and and i'd say that the Amtrak ride to san diego is quite lovely
2: I I I I really wanted that BMW. <laughs> I did I did rent a BMW and it, and it was it was worth it. <laughs> because I also had friends with me. We had luggage. We were going to a friend's house. So eh,
1: throwing in a... I understand. I understand. No,
2: no you don't. No you don't. It was a BMW. <laughs> <laughs> all right so let's go on now that we're on uh bishan and the urbanization versus uh the rural the deification of rural China uh, which could theoretically be an economic e- economic boon to the country by uh reinfusing cash into the rural environment in sort of uh, what I would call ecotourism more or less right yeah
1: I mean there's not I was in a particularly beautiful part of rural China. It doesn't all look like this. It doesn't all have the same historical architecture. You know, Mao did a number on the rural areas. And, you know, this this part, I mean, they call them, like, tourism resources. You know, there is a lot. It has a lot going for it. There's two UNESCO heritage sites right nearby, Shidi and Hongsun. Um, it's actually where Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon was filmed. Mm-hmm. And so... It's um, it's a very popular destination, but in fact, that's actually why um, why Onin was interested in it in this specific village because it didn't have as many tourist sites. It couldn't follow the same tourism development model that Shidi and Hongsoon, these two villages in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, were following, um, because you can only see so many you know temples and you know. In one day. And, and you know, vernacular architecture. <laughs>
2: right. And, and it's beautiful and it's amazing. But after the fifth one, you're like, can I do something else?
1: Exactly. I mean, so, I
2: love traveling and I love seeing churches and temples. Uh, and I love seeing religious architecture. But I'm like, oh, yeah, another Gothic cathedral. Great.
1: So Onin wanted to find a modern use for some of these old places. So he... There was a uh, there's a few old ancestral halls in the village in Bishan that were unused, and so he actually repurposed one into a bookstore. He convinced someone who owned a bookstore in Nanjing to come and um, open a bookstore in this ancestral hall. So it's an open, you know, there's an open corridor courtyard in the middle of the bookstore. And
2: Explain the concept of ancestral hall. I'm not familiar with this. Is this like a... Local, uh, a local semi nobles home or something like that?
1: No, it would be more like a temple where you would go worship, um, y- your family's ancestors. Oh, oh,
2: oh, okay. So I'm, I'm not, re- I'm, I'm thinking of it as ancestral, not, you know, the, the indigenous religion of ancestor worship.
1: Yeah, it would Got be, it. it would be like a, um, an, a place to go pay respect to your your elders uh, that came before, so in this village, there was once like over fifty Wong family ancestral halls, and then there were about five um, when I was there because many had been torn down, most of them had been turned into either grain storage facilities or um, <laughs> or just um, storage areas for the for the community so I went to visit one that was quite dilapidated and it had some pigs and chickens living in and a bunch of unused coffins because it's a sign of good luck to have your coffin ready for you before you're dead. Really? (laughs) So you got to store it somewhere.
2: Yeah. I mean, (laughs) I, I always found something like, I don't know when people were like, you go to like a cemetery and cemeteries are, I'm not gonna say stupid, but they're stupid. Uh because they're just a waste of real estate. I, I totally agree. I mean they're just a waste <laughs> of real estate. Cemeteries like like by the way, all right. Not good for the environment. No, like I'm go- I'm gonna care but you know, no one else is ever gonna care about you. You're you're gone. Unless it's someone like cool, like uh Alexander Cartwright in uh in baseball lore, because he's got a cool grave in Queens or Brooklyn. Brooklyn, Brooklyn, it's in Brooklyn. because <laughs> uh, I did a baseball tour of cemeteries. I'm like, this is awesome, because we're going to all the different baseball graves. I'm like, oh my God, Jim Creighton, the guy who invented the fastball. Ah, this is amazing. Alexander Cartwright, the guy who invented the box score. And I'm like Oh, the rest of you, you guys are losers. No one remembers you. What was I saying? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, the thing that is like, um, you know, n- Donald, 1923 to 2013, right? And it's like loving wife Barbara, 1928 to. And I'm like, Barbara's still alive. She already got it on the stone. I mean, uh, what's, what's, what's the point behind that, Barbara? Can't you just wait? <laughs> Can't you just wait a little
1: bit? <laughs> <Nope>. <laughs> She wants her, her status known.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's my man.
1: <laughs> uh, hey, it's jealousy. It surpasses all odds. <laughs> it's,
2: it's two white people talking about China and death.
1: <laughs> yeah. I know, I've always been weirdly drawn to those, you know, like that Victorian era of putting a skeleton on your desk or, or a a skull on your desk all that morbid stuff
2: or the victorian tradition of like death photos like (laughs) like someone would die of consumption then you'd like prop them up and be like hey it's little timmy tiny tim's right here and then you bury him later
1: especially in los angeles i think it's very important to understand that time is passing i think people can really lose perspective on that
2: (laughs) are 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 there big cemeteries out here in los angeles the same way they are in new york
1: there's a real famous one, Hollywood Forever, where they show movies all the time, where all the famous people are buried. Ah,
2: nice. <laughs> Why that Charlie Chaplin right there? <laughs> He's dancing on his grave. <laughs> Apparently, Charlie Chaplin was, did not talk like that, because <laughs> Charlie Chaplin was English. So, rural versus urban China in the macrocosm of rural versus urban earth cost-benefit analysis.
1: <laughs> That's a tough one.
2: Because now we're, we're going to sort of transition to your second field of expertise, which is climate change and the environment. I recently spoke with uh, Christopher schlotman the, uh, the head of the environmental studies program at NYU or the co-chair, whatever. I just call him the head because he's my friend. And I don't know who the other person is, so he's the head. Um, <laughs> and uh, we were talking about, you know, the most efficient place for humans to live is right behind us in a tower with is looking to be about 40 stories tall, which probably has 15 units per building. Therefore, the environmental impact of each of those 15 units and the one family living in them is immensely, immeasurably smaller than a tract home in Las Vegas. Now, of course, we're talking from an American perspective, but what about the global perspective and the overall trend of humanity becoming almost exclusively urban
1: that's a really big question <laughs> <laughs> i
2: stumped the expert
1: i think i mean there's so many directions to go i i think it really depends on how goods and services are traveling across that space when your food is all being how's your food being made that you're you're eating in that urban area and how are you receiving it are is it seasonal people who live in really rural areas are often living you know much more you know by the season maybe raising their own pigs or something like that that maybe eats a lot of their trash i mean there's so many different um ways i think rural I think when you think about climate, the the ways of life that are really hard on the climate are suburban ways of life, um, or I guess the other term is exurban. I think you know Los Angeles is a great example, and uh, San Francisco also of pretty unsustainable urban living. We're in downtown Los Angeles, but there's a lot of LA that needs to. Get higher and, you know...
2: Get more population density.
1: Get more population density. Or it's not exactly a sustainable urban area. we
2: are literally in a desert. (laughs) And I have running water, which still always weirds me out when I get, like... I'm not becoming a Southern California convert. I'm from (laughs) New York.
1: It's okay, Austin. Nope,
2: uh, but... You can like LA. I'm starting to... (laughs) It's, It's breaking every fiber of my bones But I'm starting to like it But then all of a sudden The analytical side of me kicks in And I turn on the faucet I'm like that shouldn't be there In New York it should be there We've got hundreds of miles of watershed In the mountains, in the Catskills That all come down through gravity fed aqueducts That are filled by rain And it's just there We have the water I don't know where your water comes from. <laughs> does anyone know where your water comes from? Yeah. Where does this water come from?
1: I wish, I, you know, I've only been here for a few years. I wish I could answer this question. But you're from
2: California originally, but, but I the think other there's part a few of California. Mo- there's a
1: few famous movies about where L.A.'s water comes from. Yeah,
2: forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. And then he gets his nose cut open by Roman Polanski. And the Roman Polanski, let's not talk more about Roman Polanski.
1: Yeah that's not, but I'm from very rural Northern California. She's my daughter. (laughs) She's, she's my sister. She's my daughter. She's my sister. Uh. I call it rural now, but it's not actually very rural, but you know, it's a small town, um, called Redding, California. And, um, it's actually was recently hit pretty bad by those forest fires, the car fire. Um, my parents were evacuated for about a week. Um, so yeah, I've been thinking a lot about, Parts of dry California that might not be, you know, sustainable, sustainable places to live for much longer. It's been kind of tough. Uh, but that, you know, Northern California, especially rural Northern California, um, north of San Francisco and Sacramento, a part of the world that most people forget exists. Um, you know, there is a lot of water up there, and it actually feeds water to most of California, especially to the farmland. Right. But that's where I'm from and I think that when you spend a lot of time growing up, you know, if you've spent a lot of time growing up in a rural area or a semi-rural area and you move to the city, I mean, at least in my experience, that, that relationship or how that those two places interact does preoccupy the way you understand yourself.
2: Right. And I'm from, I'm from an artificially natural place. Because essentially, I spoke of this earlier uh, in an earlier episode, but my town in suburban New York in Westchester County was the breadbasket, the dairy basket of Manhattan because perishability. And uh, now it's just forest and nature and happy and way too many white tailed deer um because there's no natural predators other than probably Volvos in my town. Actually, uh, Volvos? Yeah, Volvos are in Connecticut. Probably a uh, Mercedes S-Class. Um but uh, my town was the breadbasket of New York for, you know, a couple centuries and only recently reverted to quote unquote nature due to refrigeration. Um so it's, it's hard to reconcile. Like I, I figure myself from a pastoral background, uh, but 45 minutes away from the greatest city in the world, according to Lin-Manuel Miranda, who is never wrong. So, <laughs> um, wait, I just tangented there.
1: So do you, it, is your hometown becoming a place where people go for like a, Weekend vacation. Jean
2: George opened a restaurant in my hometown.
1: I see. I see. <laughs> Martha
2: Stewart and Ralph Lauren live in my hometown. Susan Sarandon lives down the street. Richard Gere lives around. It's been like that. But you know, uh, Nelson. Uh, not, not, what's his? Uh, uh, Rockwell. Norman Rockwell. Norman Rockwell lived in my town. My town looks like a Norman Rockwell painting. I believe Glenn Miller, the band leader, lived in my town. Mm-hmm. Eartha Kitt, I think, lived in my town. It's always been sort of... Uh, the town's Pound Ridge, New York. Google it. It rocks. And mm-hmm. I will never, ever, ever afford to live there unless, like, literally billions of people subscribe to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> then I got that podcast money. <laughs> and then I dance like Charlie Chaplin again.
1: Yeah. I think... Um... You know, in many ways, that sort of hometown is, to take it back to the documentary, is the type of interaction that can benefit both locals and, you know, city people. And, and you know, it sounds like it's a pretty dynamic place.
2: Right. Um, so we talked about, we were going off on the big urban migration across the world. Um, <laughs> is that... <laughs> why?
1: Why do people move to urban areas?
2: Is that the sole place of opportunity anymore? Well. In like post-capitalist, post-consumer societies or whatever we're in right now?
1: I think it's probably different in different places, but in China that seems to be the case. And in the United States, it really depends on what city you're in. And there's definitely cities that are have... You know, fallen and are, you know, coming back to life with new, you know, people moving into them. Um, But it's, it really depends on, I think, where you are. I think the documentary is really trying to say there is something that, well, I would say in China in 2012, it became more rural, more urban than rural for the first time. And that happened in the United States, I think in the late 1800s. And that was kind of the first wave of the the back-to-the-land movement in the U.S. also. The
2: United States has been urban population dominant since the the late, late 1800s. Yes. When at that point in time, New York and Brooklyn were the two largest cities in the country, and they merged on January 1st, 1898,
1: right? But since then, there have been Americans... Questioning if they've lost some aspect of themselves or their culture because they are. So it makes sense that the same time, this is now happening in China
2: because. We're sort of on the same timeline, just set a little bit, uh, just offset by a century or so, right? I mean, I guess our clock started in, you know, 1776, you know, USA, USA. Um, by the way, I love the, I love this country. And uh, <laughs> uh, stop. Uh, no, no. So our clock started in 1776, and China's clock started what 1946, essentially.
1: Well, they would say much earlier than that, but
2: but <laughs> the current China's clock started with the termination of the Chinese Civil War. Sure. Wait, wait. Don't shore me without giving an explanation. There
1: there is a, you know, the modern Chinese state makes a lot of effort to to create a tie back to, you know, its 5,000-year history.
2: Well, which is ironic because the first couple decades of the modern Chinese state spent all of its time erasing the ties to the past 5,000 years of history.
1: That is true, yes.
2: I... okay, so we've got sort of this dual romanticism going on of both a China and a United States that never existed.
1: Well, in, yes, in China, Xi Jinping is, very, is making a huge effort to tie itself to Confucian values and different things like that.
2: While the Cultural Revolution and the Great Leap Forward and all of those things were trying to eradicate those things you know confucian scholars were transferred from the city to the to the farms and you know countless lives and pottery smashed and art destroyed um so i'm trying to think if there's a parallel in american history where we engaged in willful abnegation of our heritage
1: Mm, uh, I, think, I think I can come up with one.
2: Wait, wait. Are, uh, <laughs> we're not going to the Civil War, are we? <laughs> I do declare it was states' rights. It was states' rights to own people. Full stop. Every single secession document of the Civil War said that in either the first or second paragraph. So don't at me. God. Literally read what they said. Okay. So yes, there has been a period of willful abnegation of the American past from essentially, let's see, end of Reconstruction,
1: 1876,
2: let's say. Today. I was going to say like 1955, but no, maybe the Civil Rights Act of, nope, nope, today, right now, literally right now, literally right now, still going on, you say, you say. I'm going to make a lot of friends with this podcast, aren't I?
1: (laughs) definitely well, you're not you're not getting political at all no
2: not at all not at all i'm not getting political i'm getting historical exactly. actually and, and 100% and empirically historical usa usa <laughs> usa
1: <laughs> if you chant that enough times will they not notice I, what you just said <laughs> no no of
2: course of course it's 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 the it's the automatic dry erase board of like i'm like well you know there've been some problematic issues in usa usa and they're like oh he just said usa usa he's a good guy i like him a lot
1: Is there a large overlap in Jeopardy fans and the MAGA hat wearers? Uh, Probably I believe
2: there is a zero overlap.
1: Okay. So you might be safe.
2: (laughs) 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 I'm just going to try to refrain from doing uh, any of the uh, Trump impersonations. Um, I guess that's... As good of a place as any to stop here with Leah. We've learned a lot today about China, but what we want to talk about is what's up next for you. What exhibits, films, etc. are you working on?
1: Well, right now I'm actually finally bringing the photo exhibition that I worked on and that I took to rural China to the United States. It's uh, opening in San Francisco in September, on September 4th through 23rd, to coincide with the Governor's Global Climate Action Summit. It's and called Coal and Ice, and you can see it at uh, Fort Mason Center for the Arts and Culture.
2: And uh, little known fact, or big known fact, you were featured at the Guggenheim.
1: Yeah, a short version of my film was at the Guggenheim uh, last year. And New at-
2: York, the real Guggenheim, not that Bilbao one. Oh,
1: well, it's actually at Bilbao right <laughs> oh, now. Oh, shit.
2: I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, go to the Guggenheim Bilbao. It's really just... It's, it's it's spectacular also.
1: But in November, it comes to SF MoMA uh, as part of the Art in China after 1989 uh, exhibition.
2: Excellent. All right. So everyone, you've got uh, San Francisco on your ticket to check out uh, Leah's work, Coal and Ice in the upcoming months everyone have a fantastic evening uh, and good night good morning whatever why do i keep doing this i can never figure
0: out what time of day it is with the podcast bye hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter that's why i teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create pretty litter its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80 percent less than clay litter